Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, thanks very much for joining us today. My name is Chris Freeman, and I'll be hosting this Barons podcast. I'm the chairman of the Barons Advisor Programs in Australia. If you are an Australian, my guest today does not need any introduction. He is an Australian icon. He has the Order of Australian Medal. I actually on uh, the weekend did a search on him, and he has 6,900,000 results on Google. So um, he's pretty well known. His swimming results are legendary. He's competed in a combined 54 World Olympic and Commonwealth swimming events during his career and collected medals an incredible 48 times. He actually owned the 1,500-metre event. Post-Pool, he has a very successful career in financial services. He is the CEO of Generation Life. Um, I'm, of course, talking about Grant Hackett. Welcome, Grant, and thanks for your time. Thanks very much for having me on, Chris. Pleasure. Pleasure, mate. And for the record, so we have full disclosure, some of you may know this, I am also the chairman of Generation Life and I've worked closely with Grant for the last seven years. So, Grant, into our discussion today. As a kid growing up, your dad was a policeman and you lived in Queensland. What possibly could go wrong? <laughs> oh, good question, Chris. <laughs> I um, There's plenty that can go wrong along that journey, don't you worry, but... Really, it was quite funny, you know, growing up in Queensland, it's obviously a, a, a beautiful place to grow up in and very conducive to doing outdoor sports. So, and, and it's funny, when it when it came to sports like swimming or surf lifesaving, which were sports that I was heavily involved in when I was younger, my parents didn't even consider these sports. The old man being a copper, we got transferred up to northern Queensland, up to Innisfail, and we just thought we'd join the local surf lifesaving club. Now, my brother is six and a half years older than me, Craig, and he was 10, I was four at the time, and he wanted to do the surf race one day. And he actually, you know, mum and dad said, can you even swim? And he was doing all the beach flags and the sprints and all that sort of stuff, but did the surf race, finished third, which was a pretty good result, except for my brother was absolutely filthy because he got beaten by two girls. And <laughs> We're both super competitive guys, and uh, he asked if he could do some swimming lessons. So he went off and did swimming lessons, and I started doing swimming lessons or just going in the outside lanes, just learning how to swim by myself. And, yeah, everything kind of took shape from there. And funnily enough, within six months, he was actually the state surf champion. So he was a guy I was always looking up to in terms of performance and, you know, winning. And my mum and dad were always competitive people, and I think that just, you know, happened to feed through to, to my brother and I into pretty much everything that we did. Yeah, so I, I guess dinner time would have been a competition as well, right? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Who can eat the quickest? Which I was always very slow, so I ne- I never won that one. But literally, I think everything we did, it, it was like that. Um, we'd compete on everything you could imagine. So it wouldn't matter what sport we were doing or when we were performing, even in just school sports that we didn't take seriously. Um, if I didn't do well or my brother didn't do well, there was a, a fair bit of crap thrown across the table at dinner time, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 okay. So that's <laughs> where you got your competitiveness from. And, uh, man, you know, competitiveness, you know, what, what a absolutely stellar career you've had in the pool. And, you know, I'm, 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 I know myself, but, I mean, many people in Australia have just watched you and cheered you on, especially in the Olympic um, 
1500 events where you won two gold medals and got a, a silver in the third. So you've been absolutely sensational. So good luck to you, mate. Now, from there, you um, hold a double degree in commerce and law and an executive MBA from Bond University and also a diploma of financial services. How did you fit it all in? It's funny. My my old man always said to me, you, you retire to something, not from something as an athlete. So it was well and truly, I guess, drilled into my head from a very young age that regardless of how successful my brother and I were ever going to be in sport, having an education and transferring into something else after sport was equally as important as the results that we were, I guess, trying to hunt down week in, week out um, in that sort of environment. So for me, having a career after sport was never a question and having the skills um, around that or developing the the, the skill set and getting the education that's required to do that was just kind of part of what I did. And look, I'd literally be traveling around the world, you know, I'd travel the world two or three times a, a year with the sport. And, you know, I'd be doing one or two subjects at a time at university and I'd be studying um, those subjects would be in touch with all of my my tutors and you know all the all the teachers that you know I, ha- I had around me throughout that period just so I could sort of you know get my way through um, a degree and and obviously you know move into another career where I feel like I could have the same feeling of success and drive and ambition around and so for me it was kind of just part and parcel it wasn't really an option to you know, regardless of any financial success that I might have had in sport to consider that I wasn't doing something afterwards or I was just going to give speeches on success or high performance. Um, For me, it was all about going, that's one part of my life and I've been fortunate enough to experience that. But I also have to make sure I have to prepare myself going into my next career, which I really did at probably age 28. So, you know, sort of over 15 years now. Mm. Um, And look, to, to me, that the transfer is hard. Um, in the beginning, but the quicker you roll up your sleeves and get into it, the you know, sooner you start getting results, the better it starts feeling and you start climbing your way through into a position that you feel proud of. Yeah, now well well done. And what what great advice from your dad, you know, um, to think about your next career and you don't retire from, you retire to. Uh, that's a that's a great uh, way of looking at it. So tell me, what have you taken from the swimming and the com- competition? and applied to your business career, which I might add has been very successful as well. I think for me, um, there's there's so many synergies and so many principles that you can take from sport into to any other environment. I mean, you tried teaching a six or seven-year-old kid to be competitive, to have some level of teamwork, to be determined at what they're doing, set some goals. You know, you can speak to them as much as you like, but put them in a soccer team or a football team and they'll get to understand those characteristics pretty quickly yeah. and they'll understand the importance of them if they want to be successful at what they're doing or win win a game or whatever it might be. Um, and I think sport really taught that whole sort of goal setting and, and working towards it and the importance of preparation and discipline from a very young age. I was you know, kind of 14 years of age. I'd wake up, I'd go to training at quarter to five in the morning and then I'd do six or seven K at that age. Then I'd go to school all day and then mum would come and pick me up. She'd have some food packed. I'd eat on the way to the swimming pool. I'd go back and do another six or seven K and then I'd come home probably seven o'clock at night, <clears throat> eat dinner, do my homework and then pretty much repeat and compete on a lot of weekends. So that discipline and work ethic came from a really young age. So I think a lot of those attributes that I had in sport that I really developed through those teenage and sort of formative years as an adolescent 
I really shifted that into to business as well. Um, and, and I think the reason that I've found myself in leadership positions um, in business along with sport is because when I, when I became actually team captain, Olympic team and, and national swim team captain, my coach was really worried because, as you can imagine, most people perceive swimming as a very much an individual sport, but it's a team sport until you compete, as I put it. Um, and it was funny, that year that I actually um, got the team captaincy when my coach was super worried how that might negatively impact my performance because I was focusing on other individuals and the team more, more holistically, um, I actually got world swimmer of the year above Michael Phelps that year. Wow. So I had wow. some of my best results that I've ever had in my career. And I felt like that came through because I was putting extra time and effort into the team. It was coming back to me tenfold. And I naturally um, do that because I like to see people do well. And I, I really get a kick out of seeing people produce performance better than what they thought they could could do or what they, they thought they could achieve. And so for me, transferring, I guess, that just kind of genuine kind of leadership capability into business was something that, you know, if I actually learn and develop a skill set here, bring in that methodology of success around that clear definition of success and failure, having really clear goals, not overcomplicating the process, having a super competitive and driven team with the right personalities in there, the right level of challenge and respect, but also putting the right um, intent and effort into people it comes back to you in, in loyalty and it comes back into your performance. And I think a lot of those attributes that I probably had naturally in sport or some of them developed throughout the course of sport, I've just brought into business. And look, it has taken years to go, how do I actually transfer those characteristics into the business world? It wasn't a matter of just kind of flicking a switch. I've learned over time because I found um, with business, the big difference is there can be a lot of gray in business um, and there can be a lot of things that, naturally just turn the dial one way or another and it's a lot easier to make excuses when it's in sport if you win lose or draw there's no excuses on the scoreboard and when it comes to an olympic games you get one opportunity every four years to be able to win that gold medal and if you spoil that see see, see you in another four years no one cares about your excuse so it's been a matter of being able to apply some of those characteristics within the business world which i think um, as some of it's come naturally and some of it I've developed over time to be able to transfer that. But I feel like I've got a fairly good grasp on that trans the, the transfer transferability of some of those attributes into the business world now. And if you've got the right people who buy into that, it can be very rewarding and you can create a lot of success out of it. Yeah. I think uh, I saw Steve Waugh talk about a similar thing and he was super competitive, a bit like yourself. And, you know, um, when they're playing the Ashes, I think he sort of had the mantra of do whatever it takes because once it's over, it's over and no one cares, you know, no. you had a cold or, you know, you had a sore foot or whatever, whatever it takes to get a result. So, you know, that's interesting in the business world because, you know, you can see that reflected in some of the successes you've had already. I think um, one of the, the things that I learned about winning too, I always say to the team, because I actually have a bit of a whatever it takes mentality, and I certainly had that back in 2004 when I, I won the Olympics with a partially collapsed lung because I had a pneumonia at the start of the year and had to train with this chronic chest infection. Um, and I certainly have that nature about me. But I also talk to winning. You can win, and, and I use this analogy of sport because I think it's sport's a great vehicle to be able to demonstrate what you want to see out of a business or out of people in terms of behaviours and, and outcomes. But you can win in sport and you can win at all costs. You can take performance-enhancing drugs and do whatever it takes. Or you can win the right way, do it the right way, and turn around and really be really proud of the result and the way in which you've done it. 
And I think in business, the way in which you win is really, really important too. And you want to make sure that's done with a strong team culture, with integrity and respect and all those attributes that you expect from from yourself. Um, And and the way in which you win is just as important as winning. So that's another um, kind of key aspect that I really try and drive into the psychology of the team. Don't take shortcuts for short-term results. Win the right way. And and that often takes a lot more work and, and consistency and performance as well. Yeah, and that, that, that's a good message for advisors as well. You know, advisors that are successful, you know, do it the right way and you know, they're there for the long term. And they've got such an important job as custodians of everyday Australians' life savings, you know. So um, just if they're successful, you know, you've got to do it the right way. And, and it looks after itself at some point too. If you if you do the right things, it does come back to you fivefold, tenfold. Um, yep. that, that's unequivocal. But it's one thing that I, I find, um, you know, financial advisors are, are everything. They're the lifeblood of obviously what we do and they are the forefront of it. And there's been so much change and there's been so many different elements outside of their control. But the, the two things that I always say is that when it comes to change, bring it forward early. Because anyone who brings pain forward early often absorbs it best and then finds opportunities within it that they can actually leverage. Um, And the other aspect is um, no matter what you're doing, just try and be the best in the world at it and it will always take you places. Um, And so when it it comes to financial advisors, I often talk about high performance and discussions because I get a lot of sort of questions around that. What did I learn from sport? How have I put it into business now? And a couple of those key behavioural elements are are really, really important. And I think if you can bring change forward quickly and absorb it quickly, often enough you find opportunities in that. You resist change, it becomes hard and painful and worse when you delay it. Yep, that's good advice. So, you know, as you said, Grant, you in your job, you meet advisors every day and interact with them. What do you think the, the more successful advisors do that their competitors don't? Look, I, I have to say um, the more successful advisors that I see is that they're actually very consistent in what they do, in their approach, in their disciplines, in what we call, you know, in sport preparation, what I call in business and operating rhythm. So you can see they've got all those set disciplines in place. Um, I often find the ones that are really successful are the ones that are open to doing things differently as well, finding new ways to to improve that constantly have that curiosity about them. Um, You know, when I sit down and you kind of see their eyes light up on doing something different rather than just trying to have a set formula that they've done for the last 10, 15 or 20 years, where we know over the last five or six years, we've seen more change um, around us and more challenges than what we've ever seen before. And I think the successful ones are really, really consistent um, in their approach around their disciplines. And the other attribute that I see is that they're always looking for new opportunities, new strategies um, to be able to deploy to their clients, to be able to deliver better outcomes. Um, and also they have a real discipline in terms of their approach with their team around them as well. So they're building best in class, whether they're, whether it's their practice manager, whether it's the person who's in the reception. You can see the whole operation of the business is professional from start to finish, regardless of what the role might be um, within that particular practice. Um, and they're just highly engaged and motivated individuals that come to the table to develop those sorts of environments. So, yeah, they're probably a couple of things that stand out pretty quickly. The ones that you don't see that are that that you do see, sorry, that aren't quite as successful are the ones that you see resisting things or trying to see do things the old way or trying to pull commissions out of areas that we don't pull commissions out of those areas anymore. Yeah. Um, that's where you see probably 
the the struggle um, a little bit more. And look, I, I often say to financial advisors, I mean, how good is the opportunity right now? You've gotten half the competition that you used to have five or six years ago, but you've got more Australians retiring than ever. And that cohort of Australians have all the wealth in this country, whether it's through property or through superannuation. And they need all the strategies around tax, around estate planning, around transitioning, making an income stream last them for life. So I think the the opportunity, if you really think of it in a positive mindset for financial advisors, is bigger and better than it's ever been. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, that's come through in some of the discussions we've had recently with advisors and people in the business. And the other thing that we've seen as well is this transition into a noble profession. You know, you've got rid of a lot of the bad old days and bad old um, practices that people used to do into more of a profession. And, you know, the way that advisors can and do help Australians prepare for the best retirement they can is really valuable and really worthwhile. Mm. Um, you know, you've been to New York with me and we've seen the Barron's head office and seen their team and talked about what's going on in the States. The ethos of um, Barron's is a bit like yourself. It's like they just focus on the top 1% of advisors and they don't just focus on them, but they highlight them, call them out. Um, whereas, you know, most of the other press that's out there focus on the bottom 1%. So they encourage people to be the very best they can. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more about your observation of the professionalism in the better advisors from start to finish. Yeah, it's it's kind of like um, any profession that you see out there. They're all at different points, I guess you could say, in the maturity life cycle. You know, where, where are doctors at? Where are accountants at? What's what's the regulatory overlay that they actually have to deal with? And I think, you know, financial advice over the last kind of 10 years, and to your point and the way you put it, which is a great way of, of stating it, it's more of a noble profession now. And I think, um, and it's more important than ever that we actually have financial advisors out there providing advice. Yep. Um, the complexity that you have at the different life stages, you know, whether it's anything from starting out, buying your own home, you know, investing through a super fund or going through a divorce or going into retirement or a big life stage event and the complexities of of tax, setting up things in the right entity, Um, what's your overall, you know, structures actually look like to minimise your overall tax position or to make sure that you're protecting your assets. Like there's so much to it that has to be considered that I think, Um, financial advice in this ever-changing landscape that we have around us is more critical than ever. Um, And at the same time, the profession is becoming more professional. And I think with things like Barron's are highlighting what are the very best doing, because then it gives everyone what is the gold standard within this profession that I can actually work towards and actually set some goals. And, you know, it was really interesting to your point, Chris, there just on what are some of the themes that we see coming out of the US? What I found quite interesting with some of the practices that we visited over there. And, you know, the states are always kind of five or 10 years ahead in terms of what they're doing over there compared to Australia. But a lot of them are really owning the estate planning piece now. You know, they're, they're seeing this population transition this wealth from, you know, the next generation or bypassing a generation for some of it. And they're working out, well, how do we continue to manage those assets when the grandparents have passed away that have amassed this huge amount of wealth? And they often have a an estate planning lawyer or someone within the practice that specialises and helps steer that conversation to make sure that they're, you know, meeting the objectives of the client. And, and that's something that 
I think only 9% um, from the research that we've got here at Generation Life of practices are doing really well at the moment. So you kind of go, wow, the opportunity here to be able to open up the channels of revenue, deepen the relationship with the client and continue to drive revenue in the business in the long term because you're engaging different generations is another great opportunity for advisors here. And you just learn so much from what the top 1%, to your point, Chris, um, are doing over in the States. Yeah, and that's such a good point that you make about that intergenerational wealth transfer. Um, Barron's did some research on when you know the um, patriarch of the family passes on, um, how much um, of the estate or the total assets are retained by that advisor, and it's way, way, way less than 50% because some advisors engage with just him and ignore the wife, right, in terms of, engagement so the first chance she gets to pull the money out to pull the, the money away from this bloke she does and then i think it's something like less than 40 percent retention then if you go to the next generation of grandkids um it's like less than 10 percent because they're used to you know getting on their phones looking at an advisor or a transaction or an opportunity not going to a crusty old 60 something year old advisor's office with wall, um, you know, wood-panelled um, walls and having a cup of tea and talking about, you know, politics. They mm. just want to bang, bang, bang. So the better advisors in the States are moving with that sort of trend and recognising how to service the different generations. Absolutely. It's such a good point because we often say in a lot of the, the presentations that we do at Professional Development Days, um, could you imagine losing two-thirds of your assets under management because you didn't get the estate planning piece right or you didn't engage the, the generations that that wealth is going to. And then the other aspect to that, make sure when you're including those generations in the conversation, are you the right advisor to be doing it or are you great with the baby boomers or is someone else really good with millennials? You know, yeah. if someone is going down to that generation and yeah. knowing that culturally there is a better alignment in terms of in fit there. So they're really important considerations because they can be at the huge detriment to your business. And, you know, I heard when I did one sort of PD day, someone asked the question, well, a lot of these next generations are just going to use it to pay down their debt quickly. And I thought, well, what a great opportunity to have a conversation. If they're inheriting a million dollars and they're paying down in debt, maybe there's a great opportunity there to go, well, how do we actually get debt that's deductible debt instead of non-deductible debt and then start utilising that money to leverage to go into other assets and grow your overall wealth? So no matter what, which way you're looking at it, there's an opportunity for a conversation. Um, and if you're not having that conversation, you're not capt capturing those opportunities that will present themselves or building the trust with those generations, which is obviously critical to retaining those relationships as well. Very true. And I guess um, generation life, you know, your challenges of generation life and your opportunities. I know the business, as I said before, I'm chairman, so uh, I know the numbers, but I mean, it's shown very strong growth under your leadership. Um, what, what are the big issues in generation life at the moment? I think the, the biggest challenge for us um, as a business, to, to, be, to be totally frank, is really education. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing with our product is that superannuation has been, I guess, probably the holy grail for a lot of people for so long. You know, it used to be uncapped. We used to put as much as we we could in there and, you know, there was um, really no restrictions on there. And now the, the sort of party's over. Um, and investment bonds were really big back in the 80s. And then in the early 90s, when the super guarantees came in, 
that became the preeminent sort of retirement saving structure, as you can imagine, with a headline rate of 15%. But now that the music stopped a little bit there or the constant narrative of change is there, people have to look for alternative structures. And they think of trust structures or company structures, but the investment bond structure is really another one um, because it's got so many great features, you know, in terms of, you know, maximum tax rate of 30%, but effective tax rates for a lot of our funds sit around 12 or 13%. The fact you've got asset protection in there because it's creditor protected, the flexibility to change ownership without triggering a tax liability. So there's all these attributes that we've really got to get across to financial advisors, then educate, I guess, the underlying clients on it too. So for us, that's probably the biggest challenge is to get um, all of these different messages that we can have across, whether it's tax arbitrage, because we're governed by the Life Act, there's also the estate planning benefits where you can have binding nominations. And look, we've kind of gone from $100 million of inflows per year to now well well over half a billion dollars worth of inflows um, per year. And I still feel like we're scratching the surface. I, I feel like there's a lot more growth out there. We've gone from servicing, you know, 450 active advisors per year, as we put it, getting close to, you know, 17 plus 100 a year um, that we service. So we're only really servicing probably 10% of the, the advice community that can write life insurance products. So, yeah, as much as we've had a lot of success, we still see a massive opportunity for us moving forward and a pivotal part that we need to play when we're talking to advisors around alternatives to, to superannuation or helping them with the estate planning conversation that our structure works so brilliantly in as well. Yeah, that's great. That sounds really exciting. So, Grant, that brings us to the end of our little chat. I really appreciate your time and um, wish you well in the future. You've done a great job so far and, you know, your swimming career is second to none and you're on your way to replicating that in the business world. So, well done. Uh, much appreciated. Appreciate your support both on this and uh, at the board level too, Chris. So, pay rise would be great. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.